Revelation chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so she, was, she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, time and a half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. And if you're new, you're like, what in the world did we just sign up for? Um, well, great, great. Uh, but this may come as a big surprise to you, but as a kid, I was very nerdy. <laughs> and I, 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 I was very nerdy all the way up until high school, and then I put all of my nerd stuff away and did musical theater because it's very cool, and then got back into nerd stuff right afterwards. So <laughs> and my favorite way of being nerdy as a kid uh, was fantasy. I was like a real, which I think is still pretty nerdy, like that never really made it to mainstream. Comics did, but like fantasy, no, that's still pretty weird. But anything fantasy, anything medieval that I could get my hands on as a kid, I did. I was celebrating my anniversary with my wife yesterday, and I don't know how this came up, but we were talking that as a kid, I went to medieval times three different times. 
Uh, and if you don't know what Medieval Times is, you've really missed out on one of the great joys of Vegas. Um, but it is like a medieval reenactment thing. And my mom would do trips in Vegas, and it was like an easy win, because it would be the high of my whole year to go to Medieval Times and watch a bunch of knights fake fight a dragon. Uh, <laughs> I love nerdy things, just medieval fantasy. And at the heart of that love for fantasy genre things comes a love for dragons. Because dragons are all throughout fantasy literature. My first real encounter with fantasy was also my first very real encounter with dragons, which came from Tolkien. Because growing up, my mom would read me The Hobbit. And if you've read The Hobbit, then you have the very famous dragon, Smaug. But because I'm a real nerd, I kept reading Tolkien all the way through the Silmarillion until I could name most of the dragons. Glaurung, the father of all dragons, and Ankelagon, the black, the worst of all of them. Uh-oh. <laughs> just like revealing so many things about myself to you, telling stories about my dad, that's one thing. Revealing this, a whole new level of vulnerability. Uh, but it, like, it is an obsession and a deep love of dragons. For some reason, they so compelled my imagination. But what is interesting about that is that dragons are not just fun for young kids who love fantasy. Dragons show up everywhere in mythology, in popular culture, and even in history. Maybe you were not such like a fantasy nerd like I was, who read Tolkien and others, but maybe you liked Norse mythology or Greek mythology. You see dragons show up all the time. Babylonian mythology, which is like one of the, the counterparts or conversation partners of the early writers of the Bible, are obsessed with images of dragons. You see them popping up all the time. Or if you've ever looked at like a medieval era map, cartographers would draw dragons on the sides of the maps. They show up in symbols, in stories, and in paintings all throughout history and even into our own moment. There is something deeply imaginatively compelling about dragons. And in the ancient world, dragons came to represent or became a symbol of the unknown. That's why you would see them drawn at the bottom of maps in medieval societies or even older because it kind of represented like what would happen if you made it to the end of the map? What might you find in unexplored, uncertain, or new territory? And they would draw a dragon because they'd be like, we don't know. We don't know what you might find in those places. And that uncertainty, that unknowability is frightening. Oftentimes, dragons were representative of the sea because the sea, especially for ancient cultures, but even to us today, the sea feels frightening because it is so deep and vast and unknown. Dragons, leviathans, serpents, they become images, symbols of fear, uncertainty, unknowability. And the biblical authors, they do this with lots of things. But the writers of the Bible, they love to take an image that is popular in their culture and repurpose it narratively. So we actually see, all throughout the biblical story, images of serpents, leviathans, and dragons getting repurposed to tell the story of the Bible. We see this a lot in uh, like the poetic texts that run throughout the biblical story. One of the most famous is in the book of Job. And if you've read Job, Job is a poem From beginning to end, it's a poem about someone who is suffering deeply. 
And the question on the table for Job is that in the midst of his suffering, will he trust God? Will he trust God despite all of these uncertainties that he's experiencing, despite all the chaos around him that he is experiencing? And in one very, very beautiful moment in the book of Job, kind of near the end, in Job 41, the poet, to describe the tension that Job is experiencing, writes this, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Behold, the hope of humanity is false. We are laid low even at the sight of him. It sounds cosmic and mythological, but it names something that is very familiar to all of us. A struggle with uncertainty. A struggle with what cannot be controlled, a struggle with fear, a struggle with chaos of what happens when my life begins to unravel. What do I do? How can I wrestle with that? How can I hold on to the uncertainty in the midst of me? And in a similar way to the book of Job or the Psalms, the poetic literature of the Old Testament, we see that same kind of language in Revelation chapter 12. In this text, we again meet a dragon. And this dragon is used as a symbol to introduce to us a new, not a new, but in the book of Revelation, to introduce to us an enemy of God's work. In this chapter, and actually the next two chapters, we're going to meet three different symbols that represent enemies of God's work. And this first one, the one that is behind all the evil in the world, is what is referred to as the Satan or the devil. Now, a lot of things probably come to mind, just like when you hear dragon, you're like, oh man, now we're talking about other weird Bible things. But it's just important to say, as we wrestle into this, that Satan and devil are not names. They're descriptors. They're adjectives, and they mean accuser and deceiver. And like dragon, these titles, these descriptors show up all throughout the biblical story to, again, represent an enemy of God. In the first part of this passage, we see the dragon or the accuser seeking to do what the enemy of God wants to do, which is destroy Jesus. And in the second part of the passage, you see the accuser or the enemy, the dragon, seeking to destroy the church. And it gives us this, like, big image of what is this thing up to in the world. It is anti- God. That is waging a war on God's mission. It's acting as an obstacle to the thing that God wants to do in the universe. And when we hear that, just like when we hear dragon or serpent, I think a lot of images can come to our mind about how does that happen and how does that work. We hear dragon or war or enemy and we fill in the gaps with all of our own ideas or we push a symbol into places that are strange. But like the Job text, something that we are familiar with. This text tells us what this dragon is actually up to, how it wages war. In verse 9 and verse 10, it says this, that old snake who is called the devil and the Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to the earth. The accuser of our brothers and sister who accuses them day and night before our God has been thrown down. 
As the descriptors or the titles of this figure imply, the dragon wages war through deception and accusation. Not through throwing fire or spewing fire, as we often imagine a dragon doing, but instead through deception and accusation. And that phrase at the beginning of this verse that I really like, that old snake, is meant to connect us to, again, the fuller story that the book of Revelation comes within. And it's supposed to connect us back to Genesis chapter 3, where we first see a figure called the serpent. It's not a dragon, but it is a snake. And what does that first serpent do? Well, it offers our spiritual ancestors a lie, a deception and an accusation. Maybe you're thinking, if you hear that, that the dragon wages war through deception and accusation, you're like, that doesn't sound that bad. Like, it feels like a lot of cosmic imagery to then just get to a lie. Like, I hear lies all the time. That can't be the worst thing that can happen. That's true. But the serpent of the Bible offers a different kind of lie. And I think it's one that when we understand it, we can trace so much of our own pain and uncertainty to. And that's because it is a lie of scarcity. If you remember the story in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, God creates this world, and it is meant to be beautiful, full of life and flourishing and relational connection. It's meant to be a place, well, it's meant to be Eden. And in Genesis chapter 3, you have this tension that gets entered into that story as the serpent shows up, and the serpent begins to offer a lie to our spiritual ancestors, a lie of God withholding something from them. It's a lie of lack, a lie of scarcity, that there is something fundamental missing from this creation, that there is something that they are supposed to have or something that they are supposed to need or something that they want that is actually missing from this universe. And that's what scarcity is. Scarcity is a lie of not enough. Not enough resources, not enough relationships, not enough opportunity, not enough love, etc. Whatever the issue is, scarcity is not enough of that thing we need to thrive. And when scarcity becomes a lie that we believe about ourselves or about the world, then our entire vision changes and the way that we operate in the world begins to shift to a purpose of seeking that which is lacking. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see this begin to play out. After the serpent introduces a lie of scarcity, you see immediately that the first family begins to blame one another. They hide in shame away from one another. That's scarcity, like there's not enough love for each other. The second story in Genesis is Cain killing Abel, which is a story of scarcity. They battle over which one is better, what sacrifice is better. That's a story of scarcity. They both can't live together. That God can't love both of them. Scarcity is the first great lie. And when it gets into us, when it seeps into our bones, we become desperate to get what is ours. I think we've all been here before in scarce territory. 
We know the kind of anxiety or fear or panic that we feel when it feels like there is not enough. To continue riffing on dragons, Tolkien referred to that as dragon sickness. When you hoard too much because there's a fear that there's not enough out there, there's there's not enough to satiate the beast. There's not enough love to make you feel whole. There's not enough grace to cover your shame. There's not enough opportunity for you to live in. There's not enough relationship for you to connect in. And so you hoard and you fight and we get scarce in our being and we begin to get sick with it. This might be an oversimplification, but I think that in many ways we could trace every sin that we wrestle with to the lie of scarcity. It's not enough. Why do I lie? Because I don't feel enough to hold the truth. Because I'm afraid of whatever happens in vulnerability will cost me too much. I don't have that to pay, so i got to hoard instead. Why am I not vulnerable with the ones that I love the most? Because I am afraid of what they might see, because scarcity has reshaped my vision of the universe. Man, why do I get anxious in meetings? This happens to me all the time. Why do I get anxious in meetings? I'm afraid of what's going to come in that space. I'm afraid of the moves that someone else is going to make, the criticism that someone else is going to offer, the words of rebuke as though that says something about me that costs too much. Why am I afraid to risk? Because, again, my vision has been encapsulated in scarcity, and I'm afraid the cost is too much to pay. Whether it's a story that we tell about ourselves that makes us too little, or it's a way that we live in the world around us where we don't risk, we don't love, we don't practice vulnerability, I think you can trace all of it to scarcity, to this dragon sickness, because we are afraid of paying the cost, like it will cost too much. So instead of paying, we hoard, we get what's ours, we keep it safe, we keep it secret. The difficulty with scarcity is that it is very hard to uproot. It's very hard to like peel back the layers of dragon sickness in us and get to the heart of it and begin to uproot that lie that we hold on to so tightly. It gets into us so deep that I think in some ways it's not a belief, it's a feeling that we hold. Because I might believe true things about myself, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe that I am loved beyond measure, that nothing can separate me from the love of God, not even death. I believe that here. Man, it does not always feel like that in here. And I believe that Tori, my wife, I do believe that she loves me, that she is a boundary of faithfulness, that I can, can run into her with all of my weirdness and that she will still be there. But man, it does not always feel like that. When scarcity hits me, I, I feel like I just go into my limbic part of my brain, like fight, freeze, flee. Like that's the place that I go. And it is hard to uproot scarcity because of how deep within us it gets, because it is a lie of bodies, not just of minds. So we need truth to uproot scarcity but truth that is more than spoken. We need truth that is also embodied. 
truth that meets us in person, a truth that meets us in presence, a truth that has its flesh. Revelation 12, 10 says this, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of Jesus have come. The only thing that I know that uproots the lie of scarcity is to be met again and again by the faithfulness of God. And the story of the Bible that the authors record, and even in short in chapter 12, is that whenever the lie of scarcity shows up, God meets it. When our spiritual ancestors buy the lie in Genesis 3, what's the next movement? It's God chasing them in the garden to be with them. When Cain kills Abel, what is the next movement in the story? It's God chasing Cain and actually protecting him. The thing that uproots scarcity is for the lie of lack to run into faithfulness. It's to run into a truth that does not move. It's to run into a a relational kind of reality. In verse 10 and 11, the writer goes on to say this, The accuser of our brothers and sisters, that dragon, who accuses them day and night before our God, has been thrown down. We, the people, have gained victory over the accuser on account of the blood of the Lamb and the word of their witness. In scarcity, we will do desperate things to get what we believe is ours. We will hurt people. We will hurt the ones that we love. We will, out of our anxiety, make decisions that don't even match our personality. We will lie and steal to get what we believe we deserve. And we see this all throughout the story of the Bible and throughout our own lives. But in chapter 12, what we see being told in cosmic detail is a very earthly event. In the first part of this chapter, it records the dragon trying to devour Jesus. And that feels like a strange story, but it actually is something that happened. Where it wasn't a dragon in physical form, but it was King Herod. When Jesus is announced to be born... King Herod, who is the king of the Jews, tries to destroy Jesus because he sees Jesus as a threat to his own kingship. And in a murderous rage of scarcity, Herod, seized by a vision of scarcity, commands all of the young boys in that region to die. He becomes the dragon, and with a wipe of his tail, he takes out the stars. Scarcity will engender desperate gambles to hold on to control. In the same way, On the cross, Rome, in scarcity of what Jesus represents, becomes a dragon and tries to kill Jesus. But what does Jesus do to our scarcity, to Rome's scarcity? He meets it in himself. He takes every iota of our fear, of our lack, of our desperate gambles until there is nothing left and then he offers some more so that we might gain victory by what oh his blood by his willingness to love unto the point of death and then to continue loving some more on the cross we gain victory over scarcity because in the cross the lie is unmasked There is enough for us. 
there is enough love, there is enough grace, even death itself is a lie of scarcity. The passage says that the dragon has been defeated. It says thrown from heaven and then thwarted. So defeated as often as possible. Now the problem is that we may know that to be true. Again, this is that moment of we may know something to be true, but it often feels like the dragon is still around because the dragon is still around. We live somewhere in between D-Day when the Allies invade Normandy and Victory Day. The victory has not been won, but we know that it is assured. Or it's maybe I should say it's not finished. And so in the end of this chapter, it says that the dragon, though having been defeated, will chase the people of God into the desert. It'll follow the church into the desert. And all throughout the Bible, the desert becomes a symbol for places that are uncertain or unknown. Israel is led into the desert right before the promised land. Jesus is led into the desert before his ministry begins. The desert becomes the symbol of uncertainty. Places, yes, where God might meet us and do something marvelous, but also places where the dragon will show up. It's a place of in-betweenness. It's where we live right now. The work has begun. Jesus is bringing his kingdom. The victory is assured. But we live in the middle of that space, and that is an uncertain space. It is a desert-like space. A place of in-betweenness. And the text guarantees us that when we are in this in-between place, we will meet the dragon. That old snake will be there. And it'll meet us with attempts at deception and accusation, with whispers of scarcity and lack, with stories to remind us that we are not enough, to convince us that there is not enough. So, what do we do when we meet that old snake in the desert? The little text tells us, verse 17. It says, hold firmly to the witness of Jesus. We look to Jesus. The one who defeated the snake and meets us in the wild. The one who takes our fear and offers us love. We hold fast to the witness of Jesus. Embodied truth. The word of God. Monsieur, some of us here are already in that space. Whereas we wander places that feel uncertain or known, we do feel like we're in contact with that old snake. And our vision of the world is becoming more and more scarce. So today, if that's where you are, I would ask that you hold fast to the witness of Jesus. Would you know what it looks like for a person to meet you again and again in your scarcity, no matter how hard you hold it, no matter how real it feels, no matter even what you do with it, that Jesus continues to meet you again and again and again.
Would you bring that question, that scarcity, that vision of lack, would you bring it to this table? The table is for us a symbol of the story of Jesus. Where the great lie is one of not enough, Jesus lays a table of enough and invites us to it. And where the world around us says that there is lack or there is limits or there are hard set lies around us, the table reminds us that no, in God's kingdom there is abundance, there is belonging, there is a place for you and I. And so, Missio, would you hold that lie of scarcity and would you bring it to the table where you might witness and hold fast to what Jesus is doing? Which is laying an abundant feast and reminding us that in him, we are enough. And there is enough. Missio, let's pray. Jesus, today, would you meet us? Would you meet us with the faithfulness of you? So that we might encounter one more time a love that does not move. That we might encounter one more time a place to belong. That we might encounter one more time a story that says we are welcome. Because it is very easy in the wilderness of our lives to not believe that story. To hear a story of scarcity and a story of lack and allow that to be the thing that defines our imagination. And so today, Jesus, through your songs, through your word, through your table, would we encounter a new story. And would that press against the false lie and give us a new vision of reality one firmly rooted in you. Could you meet us here and lead us to you? In your name we pray. Amen. Missio, when you're ready, I invite you to the table. There is elements that are sealed that are both gluten-free and um, just regular. Um, you can come to the table Stay at the table as long as you would like and take communion, or if you'd feel better, you can take it and go back to your seat, and there will also be someone to pray with you over here.